The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Hello, and welcome to our interdisciplinary session on anterior spine reconstruction. I'm joined today by a panel of experts for this AXDSWR session to talk about reconstruction of the anterior column of the spine. And specifically, this is an area that's important in both degenerative as well as deformity surgery. I think there's been a real evolution in the techniques of how to approach the anterior column of the spine and in our options. And with that variation in techniques comes a difference in risks as well as potential benefits. So we plan to discuss the spectrum of approaches for reconstruction of the spine. And again, I'm joined by a panel of experts uh, that include orthopedic surgeons, neurosurgeons, and vascular surgeons. And I'll start by asking each of my experts to introduce themselves. John. Thanks, Sig. John Williams. Uh, I'm a spine surgeon in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I'm John Sheff. Uh, I do exclusively spine exposure, um, vascular access surgeon in Denver, Colorado. I'm Sigurd Bourbon of the University of California in San Francisco. Izzy Lieberman, orthopedic and spine surgeon at the Texas Back Institute in Dallas. John Peloza, orthopedic surgeon, spine surgeon, uh, Midwest Orthopedic Spine Specialist, St. Louis, Missouri. So I'll start by asking you, Izzy, um, the role of anterior spine surgery in degenerative pathology. Uh, so often we're thinking now or more aware of how important it is to establish lordosis. And can you tell us about the advantages of our tr traditional anterior lumbar interbody approach? So I prefer the anterior lumbar interbody approach at the four, five, and five, one level. It, it really allows me to gain efficient access and with the knowledge we now have of the anatomy with the better retractors we now have, you can get down to the L5-S1, 4-5 level very easily, mobilize the vessels, clean out the disc after you're doing your annulotomy, you're resecting the ALL, and then you can get those corrections that you want. Make sure that you have the lordosis at 4-5 and 5-1 that you need to get the patient balanced, whether it's a degenerative or a deformity type case. I also like the anterior lumbar approach because you can go higher to 3-4 and to 2-3 if you need to. The anatomy is a little different. You have to be comfortable with it. Some of the deformities, it makes it more difficult. And you may want to consider one of the other approaches for those levels. But I find the lumbar retroperitoneal approach the, the, the workhorse that you can really do everything in it. Tell us, uh, John, as a vascular approach surgeon, the morbidity of the approach, and especially uh, of our traditional ALF getting into the upper lumbar spine, uh, getting to L2 or even higher. What's the morbidity of that? Well, I think at a very simple level, it's wound morbidity, the rates of hernias go up, and ultimately it's, it's gonna require a larger incision. But I think, as Izzy said, um, you know, even as a vascular access surgeon, my existence is predicated on the ultimate spine outcome. So at the end of the day, I want to support the best spine operation for any given patient's pathology. And sometimes that is a four-level ALIF. I think people get a little squeamish around that idea is he has the experience being a spine surgeon who does his own access and understands that anatomy fully. From a vascular access standpoint, I think we get freaked out. I hear a lot of guys say no to three, four, and two, three. 
which is a shame because those levels arguably are safer to expose. They just require more extensive fascial release and bigger incisions. Um, but the power of an ALIF is, is still undeniable. Yes, we have lateral approaches um, that may be arguably easier, quicker, but what you give up potentially is that sagittal alignment, the correction you can get in the direct anterior approach. So John Williams, you heard uh, longer incision, bigger fascial release, especially to get to the upper lumbar spine with a traditional ALIF. And, uh, and you've really been doing a lot more surgery in the lateral position, uh, in part to make it more minimally invasive. Can, can you talk to us about how you've transitioned from your traditional ALIF to doing your anterior reconstructions from a lateral position? Sure. Well, interestingly, I, I uh, appreciate the comments of both gentlemen. I agreed with both of them, and especially Dr. Chef mentioning this idea of how do we develop and focus on delivering quality care to the anterior column. Uh, my personal experience began with just doing all open ALIF surgery, and, and then when I recognized, boy, we, we do a fair amount of trauma to the abdominal wall. We mobilize the peritoneal contents a fair amount. You know, that we see that the, the left ureter does come under some duress when we mobilize and, and move it for traditional supine ALIFs. That kind of made me think, is there a better way? And, and uh, uh, Dr. Luis Pimenta developed this trans-SOAS approach. Uh, but then when we did that, we, we ignored L5-S1 pathology, which as you mentioned, SIG, is critical to reestablishing sagittal realignment. So now this, this whole concept of, of What's, what's something in between traditional ALIF surgery and direct lateral surgery? And that's ALIF surgery from an oblique approach. And I, I think that, that accomplishes what we're trying to do, you know, deliver quality care to the anterior column and spine while minimizing the, 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 the dissection of the abdominal wall and the manipulation of the peritoneal contents. So, so John Pelosi, in terms of this being a more minimally invasive approach, where do you see an effect size by uh, uh, using an anti-SOAS uh, approach compared to a traditional ALIF? Are you seeing differences in ileus, differences in complication rates? Where, where do you see some advantages of the uh, anti-SOAS approach? Well, it's, more, uh, it's a more minimally invasive approach, so less fascial dissection, less dissection on the peritoneum. You can get right to the front of the spine through the anterior exposure, uh, anterior to the SOAS exposure. You're basically doing an ALIF without manipulating the vessels much. Um, we st this happened to us in the early days uh, in my training with an anterior lumbar where the vessels were stuck and we couldn't move them over. We essentially did an ALIF, but from an anterior approach. So you can change it as you need to. As we develop the uh, OLIF type approach, anterior to psoas, we start just making small incisions with just a, a small fascial incision and put specially designed retractors down that John worked on, and we could get a very nice uh, exposure, just take out a portion of the annulus and then put a specially designed anterior implant in that direction, all through basically tubular retractors. So I think you're bringing up an important point, which is that it really is an evolution. And you pointed out over the course of your career, you went from uh, working with a traditional ALIF to in some sex, in some cases where there may be uh, scarred in vasculature, actually peeling back the psoas a little bit and actually taking that anti-psoas approach from a ALIF. And now I think we'd all recognize it's important to really um, have a, a spectrum of tools in our approaches, right? To be able to go trans-psoas, anti-psoas, and ALIF. Well, yeah, I mean, as he pointed out before, 
the first priority is what is the diagnosis you're operating for? What is the spinal condition? And then, um, so if it's deformity, you have a significant kyphotic deformity where you have to fix it, you're gonna to have to get most of that usually from the lower two levels. So then what is the best way to get there? The anterior approach is obviously the best way because the, the posterior approaches are very um, restrictive. They have limitations on how much you can do. So if your vessels, if, if you only have to do the two lower ones, then a supine approach is very nice because you have total control of the vessels. You can uh, get a very large lurdotic implant in it and correct it. If you have to start going higher, then um, you can still do the anterior approach up to L2-3, but sometimes not so much at 2-3 because of the renal vessels. There, a more anterior the psoas can be helpful. And even up at the uh, L1-2 and 2-3 levels, then a lateral approach is very safe in that area. Um, sometimes when the ribs come too low, uh, an anterior thesaurus can be difficult because the ribs are in your way, and then you can go through the rib uh, interspace uh, without too much trouble. So it depends on what your needs are. And then your preoperative imaging shows you where the vessels are and can give you an idea if they will be mobilizable. Uh, John has written on this uh, and actually has a scoring system, and I'll let him talk about that as to how uh, easy it's going to be. If you're doing your own exposures, you need to know this, but if you have a vascular access surgeon, then you need to review it with them and, and make sure you're both on the same page in the day of surgery so it flows. John, why don't you tell us about what you look at radiographically and how you score this? Well, yeah, so I completely agree with all of John's points. I mean, you're, you're trying to constantly balance um, approaches in a dynamic space, but you have to factor in, I think the two things that we haven't really touched on are body habitus. I mean, that's, that's brutal. Um, the bigger the belly, we all know what the implications are, but is there a threshold that's just flat out too big? Most common question I get, you know, what's your BMI cutoff? And my answer every time is, I don't have one, right? What matters to me, I have to be objective. And the objective measure of what we're really asking, which is how does the patient wear their weight, is we use CT scan right now, but we also just um, submit an abstract on using ultrasound as a non-radiation non therapy. Um, but the exact measure from the skin to the spine in line with the disc, uh, which you can get off a scalp film if you've got a lumbar CT, or you can get off of uh, abdomen pelvis, which feel like everybody in the world has now had that imaging study. Um, but conventional retractors, they go to 200 millimeters. So if you measure skin to spine and it's 250 millimeters, it's not going to work. It's a good drill. Um, and it's just, and so I think we've, we've got to get objective in, in that sense. And then the other two parameters we look at are related to vasculature. So where does the native vessels live? People talk about, do we need a CTV? Do we need advanced imaging? The answer is absolutely not. Um, all this information exists on T2 weighted MRI, and that's, that's what we use when we're planning. But you'll see exactly where the location of the vessels are. Obviously, when you do a 5-1, vessels are way out lateral. You've got a huge anterior corridor, well, that's great, right? But what do you do when you've got a midline iliac vein? The thing is, you want to know that going in. I do plenty of 5-1 exposures all lateral to the vessels. I do plenty of 4-5 exposures within the confluence, right? I want to know that before we step foot in the OR. John and I, when we've worked together, I want to have communicated that to him and the impact on the, uh, the um, actual case, the operative time, et cetera. And then the second feature that I think is a game changer is the presence or absence of the, what we call retrovascular fat. Um, so that, that it's, it's a sliver of white behind that iliac vein seen on T2-weighted MRI. 
radically changes my interpretation and my approach related decisions. If I know I can easily lift that vessel off, there's a well-preserved adventitial plane, then that doesn't really matter so much that the vessel's in a horrible spot, right? Because I can move it. But if the vessel's in a horrible spot and there's no fat plane, I know that vessel's gonna be fused. Um, the risk, the complexity, everything skyrockets. And it's critical that we're taking that information objectively, we're communicating to the patient, to, in my case, to my spine colleague, to the spine team, right? It, it becomes much more scientific than, I mean, the art of medicine's great, I mean, let's face it, uh, we want objectivity. Absolutely. John, let, let's focus a little bit, John Williams, on, on L4-5. And tell me, what are you doing with the recurrent ileal lumbar vein when you're working in the anti-psoas space compared to if you're doing a more traditional ALIF? Sure, sure. Um, so the ileal lumbar vein, uh, uh, I think we would all here agree that this, this is a vascular procedure at L4-5 and L5-S1. There's a component to this, what we're trying to accomplish where the vascular anatomy comes into play is very relevant. At L4-5, the ileal lumbar vein from a left-sided approach is certainly that. Um, the fascinating thing is when we approach L4-5 and say we're gonna do an A-lift from an oblique approach, you know, we really don't mobilize the great vessels. We're gonna use some form of a retractor that goes anterior to the ALL, but really just protects the great vessels. And in those cases, I've, I'm no longer ligating the ileal lumbar vein. But in contrast with the traditional supine ALIF, which I still believe in, but at L4-5, if you're gonna mobilize the great vessels now, I think Dr. Sheff would agree with me, that ileal lumbar vein needs a hard look. Mm -hmm. And in my hands, I take it every time. So if I'm gonna do a traditional supine ALIF, I, I, I know some guys will take a chance and say, oh, it looks like this one is mobile or has plenty of length. I just don't take that chance. I, I, I identify mobilize and ligate the ileal lumbar vein every time. So if you had a patient, a scenario of a patient who's got a collapsed disc at 4-5, you want to reestablish some low doses there, perhaps doesn't have a good fat plane uh, between the vein uh, and the disc there, uh, are you going to try and get that with an uh, anisoas or a lateral approach, or are you going to really try and get that with an ALIF approach? Okay, that's a good question. You put me in a tough situation because um, if I feel like I can develop that ALL tissue and provide a, a position to put a 15 degree lordotic massive cage, I'll approach that from an oblique approach. But the, the, the way this, this is kind of the latest evolution of working in the intercolumn, the way the oblique ALF approach is, is evolving, now you can gently mobilize the arterial structures take down the ALL, and then reestablish outstanding lordosis at L4-5, as long as you have an implant that provides safety. In that. So, so you have to put a, a cage in that you can fix with a, a zero-profile cage, basically. John, let me just ask, how do you feel about uh, an orthopedic surgeon uh, in that scenario, where again, there's not a lot of fat between the vein and the four or five, trying to create some lordosis there, uh, doing that, um, uh, when a vascular surgeon might not be available? Well, I think it, it, it all ties to experience and expertise. I, I know Aziz, I can't imagine how many ALIF exposures you've done, but I imagine you've encountered vascular injuries. And if you feel comfortable managing them, you know, again, the vast majority of vascular injuries that, that I have in my own cases, I'm using topical hemostatics to manage. So 
we're not even necessarily talking about suture ligation or reconstruction. That being said, I do think you can select out very critically those patients who are at high risk for vascular injury. Just like you said, it, the scenario you presented is the one that makes my skin crawl a little bit because it's it throwing a little, like a low-grade spondy on top of that, that bone-on-bone, low-grade spondy adherent vessel at 4.5, that becomes a real challenge. And for me, I tend to, for two reasons, favor a direct anterior approach or would at least give that advice. And one, again, it's your workhorse for lordosis. There's no better ALL release than an AF. That's the gold standard. But also, um, I think in a roundabout way, there's two ways to prevent vascular injury. Avoid the vessels or control the vessels. ALIF, supine ALIF is still the gold standard for controlling vessels. I'm gonna make a bigger incision. I'm gonna do a more extensive fascial release and I'm gonna really control the vein for the entirety of that exposure. But for me, I'd rather have that scenario where everything's out in front of me. If an injury occurs, I know exactly when, where, how, and I address it. The challenge, and I do plenty of lateral position surgery, the challenge in lateral position, I think fundamentally is you don't have that um, uh, appreciation or even the intimate association with the vessels. So if you have a vascular injury there, it becomes a real bear. So I want to pause this briefly and just, uh, I think there's two things that came across really clearly so far. One is the fact that really having the ability within your uh, surgical tool bag to move between these techniques and really not being myopic, uh, trans-SOAS, anti-SOAS, uh, uh, traditional ALIF, having the ability in the right circumstances to apply the right techniques. And then number two, I really think that in most instances uh, where there's complex anatomy or where it is more of a vascular procedure, uh, this is an interdisciplinary type of a operation. And I think working together between disciplines is awfully important. Izzy, let's talk a bit about uh, right-sided approach versus left-sided approach. Uh, when, when are you approaching spine uh, from the right side versus the left side? Very, very rarely, in fact. Um, the only times I've approached the right side is if there's been multiple previous left side attempts. Mm -hmm. uh, occasionally, if the pathology is truly right side, if we've got a, a tumor or something that we're doing mm -hmm. on, on that side. But for the degenerative the deformities, I really can't remember a time where I did a primarily right-sided approach uh, as opposed to a left-sided retroperitoneal approach. So I think it's, it's exceptionally rare, uh, in my hands at least. Let me, let me give a scenario and, and see what you think about this. Somebody's got an ischemic spondy at 5.1 as well as a degenerative scoliosis. So you're thinking that you may need to do something above L5 in the future, but for now you can deal with ischemic spondy. When you think about doing ALIF at 5.1 from the right side, preserving the left side for a possible subsequent surgery? So I, I, I've not been too concerned about scarring. Uh, I think as a surgeon, and not to elevate my stature beyond anything I deserve, but I've done a lot of revision surgeries, you learn how to deal with the scar, and scar becomes your friend, and, and you can actually peel things off, and you can use the layer of scar to protect the vessels in the retroperitoneal space. So I, I wouldn't shift my primary procedure to right side in the event that I have to come back to the left side. I, I just haven't found that to be needed. John, is it from the vascular perspective, and somebody who's had one or more left-sided approaches uh, to the retroperitoneal uh, space, would you tend to go uh, towards the right side as an approach, or would you uh, perhaps 
go through SCAR because it's your friend. Yeah, well, sadly, I'm not as qualified a surgeon and I'm scared of SCAR. Um, I'll just be honest. I'm not um, friendly with it either. Yeah. <laughs> but I understand. SCAR referred to as a friend before, but is he such a positive person? You can make a friend out of everybody. So well, and to that, to that point, I, I get what you're saying about SCAR being your friend. If you can find that plane, absolutely, you can elevate and you've got a little extra tissue to reinforce. Flip side is, if that vessel's so adherent and you don't get into that plane, you're, you're set up. So it's, it's a balancing act. I will say in my practice, I approach any de novo 5-1, regardless of orthoplasty, orthodesis, from a right retroperitoneal approach. The issue is not so much, in my mind, the, the scar around vessels or even the spine. What I worry about is the ureter. So if I can have a virgin access point, including mobilization of the ureter, I'd rather set myself up for that. It, it, again, the perfect scenario is like you said, we, we do this all the time. Five one's clearly symptomatic, but they clearly have a diseased spine. If I'm thinking there's any chance I'm gonna be back there, same level or otherwise, I'd just rather approach five one right-sided. Above five one, I think you're, you're probably your best bet still is a left retroperitoneal approach. When should we stand the order in a revision? I think quite frequently and certainly in the scenarios where someone's been there before. It's, it's remarkable to me, and this is a challenge too, you know, when you do, do your own access and the patient comes back to see you, you know what you did, you know your technique. Problem is there's a lot of variability out there. And so, I, I mean, I review x-rays sometimes for 5-1 ALIF where the retractors were up at 3-4. So that patient, that's a totally different retroperitoneum. I for sure am stinting that ureter among other things. Mm -hmm. But the, to me, again, the, the ureter is what concerns me above all else. I can manage vasculature. Getting into the ureter is very problematic. And you see when someone's been there, it is amazing how stuck that ureter can be. You, you can tell when that surgeon was very liberal with the use of cautery in mm -hmm. the retroperitoneal yep. space. Sure. It's, it's in it. and, the reality of, of all of this is we've evolved from the thoracoabdominal approaches that we used to do, where we would take the 11th rib down, lift the diaphragm down to get access to the rest of the body, because we've understood the anatomy, we've got better tools, and now we can focus on targeting the pathology in the least invasive fashion, minimizing the collateral tissue damage. The, the only plea that I would make is regardless of what access you use, we've got to do the right job. And what I really find disturbing is when I hear individuals, and they come to these meetings, oh, I did this TLF in under 20, under 20 minutes, skin to skin, 45 minutes with pedicle. And I'm thinking, when I'm doing my ALIF, it takes me 20 minutes just to clean out the disc space properly to get the fusion. To do that properly, you need the exposure. So this isn't a rush operation. You have to take your time, you have to do the right job, whether you're doing it lateral, oblique, whether you're doing it ALIF, even the prone trans, trans uh, psoas approaches, you've got to take your time. Well, John Pelosi, let me ask you that in terms of the discectomy. I couldn't agree more on the importance of end plate preparation, the importance of getting to that dense subcondyl bone. What about the importance of, we talked about the ALL, but taking down the PLL, really trying to get some posterior 
heights and trying to increase the height of the foramen. How often are you doing that? And is that compromised maybe when the patient's in a lateral position? Are you more likely to get uh, the PLL taken down and increase the posterior height with the patient in a supine position? Well, a lot of times we just release the PLL from the bone. We don't resect it. Right. And that came from the uh, arthroplasty experience. So you want to release it, and sometimes you release it out to the foramen, and then you put a retractor in to make sure you get parallel distraction. Oftentimes you don't need to do that in a regular fusion. Right. Um, I really do like the, in, uh, the indirect approach, and particularly in deformity, we use it, I've been using it a lot more because then you don't have to do a decompression or maybe an osteotomy. If you release from the front, distract it, and we may stage those and have them walk around the next day and see if all their leg pain's gone, and then we re-image them on a scoliosis uh, picture and see how much um, uh, correction we have. And then, if it's looking pretty good, we'll percutaneously put in the screws. Yeah. rather than create the exposure on the posterior musculature. But if I have to relieve or remove the uh, posterior longitudinal ligament and decompress from the front, it's actually very similar to an a um, ACDF when you, you can remove that and see the root from the front of the exposure in the lumbar spine. Yeah. Then the other thing I think what, what I take the most time with is end plate preparation. I, it's really critical to get that right and not damage the end plate have it really cleaned off to the subchondral bone and then put a, yeah, a, an appropriate sized end plate. We like to engage the uh, peripheral end plate, the ring, so that we don't subside. Uh, and then we get a high fusion rate and correct the deformity. So again, it goes back to why you're there. Yeah. You've got to correct the problem. Do you think there's a difference in your ability to release the PLL when the patient's in a lateral position compared to the patient being supine? Supine's way easier, yeah. but you can okay. still do it lateral. Okay. So, agree, you know, from uh, the contralateral side on a lateral approach and an anterior approach is pretty easy. Yeah. It's getting closer to posterior and that because you're coming at an angle. So the ipsilateral corner is where it's tougher. Yeah. So I think the point you're making is that uh, getting indirect decompression on the concavity works well with the lateral approach. When the indirect decompression really requires an increase in the posterior height and release of the PLL, it might be a little bit easier with the anterior approach. Very much. Okay. Um, let me ask this, as young as say something maybe controversial, but uh, in adult lumbar deformity, uh, I think that most of the pathology is in the, the stiffest part of the curve, and most of the pathology is really from L4 to S1. And that's where I'm doing most of my uh, A-lift work, maybe L3 to S1. I, it's uncommon that I find that I need to have anterior interbody support from L1 to L3 or L4. What are your thoughts about the role of anterior interbody support in the mid lumbar spine? So let's go back historically and remember why we started doing A-lifts or anterior procedures in deformity at L5-S1. To prevent the pseudoarthroses, to protect the S1 screws and then the iliac screws. And then as we got this other technology, we started using it more and we realized, okay, well, maybe we're getting a little better correction here and there. Most of those cases, those deformity cases, almost always are gonna need posterior instrumentation with good Smith-Peter facetectomies to get the correction. And if you look at the alignment, you've got the posterior aspect of each vertebral body is essentially bone on bone. I don't do a lot of laterals in those. I will create the foundation, and much like John mentioned, I do stage almost all of these. So between stages, I can assess 
the resolution of their neurological and claudication symptoms. I can get full-length standing x-rays and see what their alignment's like. And I can actually change, call the audible, and adjust the extensiveness of the posterior procedure. And we audited uh, our cases, and in 30% of my deformity cases, I changed my pre-op plan on the basis of the staging and went from something long to a perk three to one instead of a perk 10 to the pelvis with iliac screws and everything else because we addressed the pathology, we got the alignment, and we got good fusion base from in front at L3, 4, 4, 5, 5, 1, not even needing to do two, three, one, two. Terrific. Sig, I think it's important that we don't forget while the, the stiffest part of the construct is usually distal, and when we begin at L4-S1, you're correct, but when you're revising somebody that had an L4-S1 20 years ago, all of a sudden the stiffest portion of the deformity can be L3-4 and L2-3. Why I think it's important as we develop these skills to develop them from T11 down to S1. Have the ability to work in that space knowing that Adjacent segment degeneration is a real thing, and, and, and being able to get into the anterior column at one or two levels at the distal portion of the deformity is very important. Yeah, important point, absolutely. The revision situation is always different. And in this space, addressing the anterior column in a revision setting is just it's, it's key to getting a good result for your patient. So I'm going to conclude now and uh, give each of you an opportunity to make one final comment, but just specifically what this Axial Expert Symposium was about is uh, the recognizing that anterior column reconstruction is an important part of what we do in lumbar surgery, uh, be it for degenerative pathology, uh, deformity, tumors, infection, a broad spectrum of disorders. I think it's important to recognize that there are advantages and disadvantages to the uh, different approaches to the anterior column. Uh, today we didn't talk about uh, the anterior approach from a prone position, but that also is uh, the developing technology. Uh, to that end, I think the main take-home messages are making sure that we've got the ability to apply the right approach to the right pathology, and recognizing that an interdisciplinary approach, I think, is in the optimal interest of patient safety and outcomes. With that, I'm going to invite each of my experts to perhaps uh, wrap this up with, with one final comment. I'll start with you, John. Thank you. Don't be a one-trick pony. Learn all the different techniques so that you can handle any situation that comes up. And if you need to, talk to your uh, colleagues and, and have the vascular access guys available all the time, and uh, for certainly for revision. I don't want to deal with the ureter. Um, for simple things, we can do that, uh, you know, do an exposure, but otherwise, I would feel better with the vascular surgeon. Yes. Come to the operating room prepared, know what you're going to treat, and always have your plan A, plan B, plan C, and sometimes even plan D in mind before you get there. If you're in a lateral and you run into trouble, you have to know how to get that patient into the supine position to take care of the trouble. Uh, likewise, if you're in the supine position, something happens, you have to know what your bailouts are. So I'd say, uh, you know, obviously I'm the man out here as far as being a non-spine surgeon, but I'll be honest, my passion is spine surgery. At the end of the day, I'm here to facilitate the best spine surgery and spine outcome for these patients. That's why I exist. And so I, I would just reiterate or underscore the importance of, of building collaborative partnerships and doing it up front 
because it always it's always tricky. You know, if you get called in to fix a problem, no one wins. And and yet, I think a lot of those problems could potentially be prevented by having that relationship established up front. So, I think that's an important piece of this this puzzle. Okay. Uh, Dr. Lieberman, Lieberman touched on something I think is very important. You're doing great work is sometimes just a matter of taking the time to do it. Um, you, you made that point that guys talk about at meetings like this, how they can do a certain procedure in 20 minutes. I always love to hear that because that always tells me that's the guy I don't want doing my surgery when it's, when it's that time, you know. Doing a great discectomy, whether you do a supine ALF, uh, uh, an oblique approach, it's just a, a matter of, you know, knowing where you are, make, getting great exposure, using the resources around you to do just that, get great exposure, and then do a great discectomy. Do a great decompression, mobilize the inner body space and get the results that your patients need. So plan, build a team, and have a spectrum of approaches. With that, we're gonna wrap up this session of Axie Experts. Thanks for joining us.